Welcome to the Future Food Citizenship Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie. And I'm Sinead. Join us in conversations with the changemakers shaping a new, fairer food system. In this episode, we're talking to Porek Fogarty about the reasons for the dramatic decline of biodiversity in Ireland. Enjoy the episode. My name is Porek Fogarty. I'm the campaign officer with the Irish Wildlife Trust. And you're also an ecologist and author. I'm, I'm an ecologist and I, I wrote a book called Whittled Away, Ireland's Vanishing Nature. Yes, and mm. uh, um, I think your book is um, really interesting in so many ways and it's also quite shocking. You're giving a status quo of the mm-hmm. Irish natural heritage. And um, what I'd like to ask you first is... Um, Where, what brought you to write that book and were you aware of the whole extent of what's happening in Ireland before you wrote it? Um, well, it just uh, before, it was in the years before I wrote the book, I had been uh, chairman of the Irish Wildlife Trust and that would have been around um, 2010 kind of time and at that time we were working on a number of different campaigns I think the common fisheries policy was being reformed so we were doing work on overfishing around that time we had um, we were we were uh, in the recession at the time so the food harvest 20 I think it was two, food harvest 2020 it was called at the time that plan came out uh, and so agriculture was very much on our minds um, and then, of course, Origin Green came out in um, uh, around 2013 as well. Um, and at the same time, we were dealing with... Uh, so that was kind of far- farming and fishing. And then we were also dealing with issues around our national parks, so particularly Killarney National Park has some very serious problems. And what we were doing at the time, we were sending out press releases and maybe we were writing to ministers and things like that. But, you know, you might get you know, some media uptake. And then the story would be gone again in a few days, you know. So I thought, really, this isn't... We're not really getting anywhere with with this approach. But it occurred to me that when you zoom out, and instead of just looking at Killarney National Park or issues with agriculture or issues with fishing, you know, when you zoom out, you look at the whole state of the natural environment, nobody was really looking at the whole story. What's happening in the sea? What's happening on the land? What's happening in our rivers? And when you look at that and you put the layers over it, the land use, the level of pollution, the extinction that's happening in our country, uh, I thought that was a very powerful story that nobody was really uh, paying any attention to. And um, uh, as much as social media is great, it's very hard to get these stories across in social media, you know, in some kind of a 24-hour attention span. So I thought a book would be a, would be a good idea and would give me the, the kind of the space to expand on, on the various things I was thinking about. So that's really where and why I wrote the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find um, <clears throat> what I like about the book is from the very start that you don't hold back. <laughs> Do you know, you're straight up with it. And I think sometimes we need that bit of a shock mm-hmm. um, because, you know, a couple of points that even you'd said it yourself in the book and something came to my mind even before I got to the end of chapter one, which is very much like too many of us really believe that green image, you know, that Ireland is green, everything is fine, nothing to see here, it's all grand left. But that's not the case. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I think the book is great at kind of, you know, grabbing you by the shoulders and going, 
okay, this is not as green as we think it is. Yeah, I think even within environmental organisations like uh, the Irish Wildlife Trust, uh, we've been banging on about these issues for so long that people had started saying, look, you know, this negative approach isn't working you know people don't like negative messages it's a bit of a turn off uh, we need to engage people with nature mm-hmm. which I don't necessarily agree with but that doesn't work either mm-hmm. so uh, I kind of went the, the opposite way I said this is really bad you know I mean if somebody turns up with, with the, to the doctor's office with you know some fatal ailments the doctor doesn't say well you know you've lovely hair and you know <laughs> let's focus on the positives you have to confront um you have to really look it in the eye is, mm. is the hard part because people don't want to look these issues in the eye uh, because they're not pleasant and they're difficult and, uh, and they have very profound consequences, I think, for our, uh, our society and that's not an easy thing to do. Um, but I think we can't move on. We're never going to be able to address the problems fully. Like Climate change is enormous and then we have this extinction crisis on top of that. Mm. They're enormous problems. But just because they're difficult to deal with doesn't mean they can't be dealt with mm. and that's why uh, the book I suppose it's uh, for most of it it's pretty brutal uh, but I felt it was really important to be brutal but also to point out that there are things we can do about it and there are things we should do about it so there's a difference between the brutality of the hard facts and maybe a certain uh, hopelessness that can come from that which you know I try to say you know we don't have to go down the hopeless road we can do things yeah I think often what happens is this paralysis because mm. the problem is so gigantic and mm. it's like, okay, well, what role can I play really as a but just to come back to the first question as well so were you aware of the whole scope of, of you know of the extinction and all were the things that surprised you actually during the research of the book well, um, I, I, I kind of had been because uh, I was dealing with these other issues. Things like uh, overfishing, for instance. I had known when overfishing was a thing mm. uh, for, you know, for years. It has been a thing for many years. But I suppose I had never really answered the question, how does it affect us here in Ireland? And I think it's one of the problems we have uh, in this country is that when we hear about environmental problems uh, like deforestation and uh, you know, things going extinct and overfishing, we think it's happening somewhere else. We associate it maybe with the jungles or, uh, you know, the Amazon rainforest. And uh, it was important for me in the book to answer the questions, how are these affecting our country? How are they affecting the places we know that we've grown up in? Um, and, uh, and so that's the story I was trying to tell. But yeah, I did, particularly researching things like, um, like fishing. Uh, that, that really came as a shock to me, how, just how much life has disappeared from the sea. And if anything, that has had an enormous impact on people. Mm. We're often accused in uh, environmental groups of uh, you know, caring more about snails and birds than mm. we do about people. Uh, but of all areas, fishing has had such a dramatic impact on people and communities mm. because the fish just aren't there anymore. Mm. And uh, so that was also another th- story I wanted to tell. I think that was even, for me, um, like that, obviously... Would have a level of aware of awareness, kind of with environmental issues in Ireland. But the fishing, actually, in that part of the book, was even for me. You, you forget that we actually did have some kind of fishing industry, you know, because we because it has been so disastrous mm-hmm. for people. You just no one talks about it, and you don't hear it, and we don't even think of ourselves mm-hmm. as the fact that we are an island <laughs> that fished. <laughs> you know, there's a big disconnect there. 
So yeah, it, it is. It's shocking, but but actually, I mean, you don't even right. I'm in I'm in my forties. I remember uh, as a child would have been let's say the nineteen eighties. We always had whiting for dinner. My mother made cod and place, and that fish was caught in Holt, mm-hmm. um, and there was never any shortage of it. Those fish are now gone. Mm. And nobody asks, you know, at the supermarket, why, why are these fish not there anymore? Or sometimes when you do see them, they're just tiny little babies. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, the way the system is set up, it's designed to just keep extracting, keep extracting, and never to pull back and say, hang on a sec, we need, we need to go back to this point. Like the 1980s is not... You know, it's not, we're not talking about hundreds of years ago. Sometimes when I'm talking about wolves and bears, people say, well, that was, you know, t- totally ancient history. But this is 20 years ago we're talking about. Mm. Yeah, even, um, I suppose, moving from fisheries then to agriculture, I'm just thinking, you know, when you said, when you wanted to tell the story about the things of when we were kids and stuff like that, it was only recently, um, except my partner were talking about, it was so, we couldn't remember the last time we saw a real hay meadow you know like we used to run around them as kids and <clears throat> the crack we used to have until the rush went up your nose or something but generally you know like we've it's a long long time since I've seen a hay meadow because mm. everything is about that extraction mm. you know obviously we don't live by the sea so we kind of see it more on the land so I suppose that's then moving what was kind of your research into that what's the things that stuck out the most to you on land mm. Well, I mean, it is it is agriculture and forestry, I suppose, are the two big things. And I suppose our bogs as well are the three main areas in terms of how we use the land. But agriculture uh, more than any because so much of Irish land is in agriculture. And just, uh, I mean, the dramatic changes that have occurred in agriculture over the last maybe 50 years, I'd say even. Um, and, uh, and and I think it has changed the the sound of the countryside as well. It's it's kind of hard to imagine the the birds that used to live there, the sounds that used to be associated with it. And you know, you talk to older people and they'll tell you about the sound of the corn crick at night time, or the sound of the curlew in the summertime, or if they were living in hilly areas, they'd talk about the sound of the nightjar. I mean, nobody even knows what a nightjar is anymore. Um, and, and yet that bird has completely uh, disappeared in Ireland and it's very sad because then the new generation coming along feels that this kind of silence in the countryside is normal and they don't, they don't miss it and yeah. so, uh, so there's never any impetus to, uh, to restore it but, uh, but certainly uh, our, our landscape is, is I don't like using the word sterile, it sounds very, but I mean it's pretty close to sterile compared to what it was. Um, I mean you imagine a farmer's field, you know, pre-war would have had lots of types of, you know, they would, would have been called weeds, you know, they weren't wanted, but there was lots of types of plants and flowers growing in the fields. There would have been birds nesting in the fields, skylarks and quail and partridges and corn crakes. And, uh, and of course, the fields would have been full of invertebrates. They're all gone. They're, if you're standing in the middle of a farmer's field these days, chances are you'll see maybe one type of grass. You'll see, uh, you might see some thistles poking through. And that's a problem, you know. We know that there are specially designed herbicides just for the thistles or the docks, you know, mm-hmm. to eliminate absolutely everything else. 
And, um, and that means that the life has basically been deserted from the fields, which means anything that is living in that landscape is living in the hedgerows. Which shows why we have our hedgerows are, are so important, but even there, they have uh, problems now as well. I know. <coughs> I saw recently, uh, yesterday, uh, someone tweeted, <coughs> um, it was a by road, and one side, the hedgerow was all big and grown over, and the other was, you know, perfectly square and neat. And it was a farmer saying, this is the tale of two farms, this is mine, and that's my neighbour. You know, and you're kind of gone. And I've already seen it now. I think this is a great time to do this podcast as well, because all everywhere around the country now on our side now, all you see is the hedgerows are, are beginning to be butchered. And I mean, you know, there's no grace to it anymore. It's just cut across the top. And they're not even near roads, you know. Mm. Like So we've gone from, I see it in the fields, I agree with you, like, stand in any green field and it's bright and it's lovely but it, there's no life in it and now we're doing that to our hedges as well yeah and then we've, we've heard a lot of the discussion about the heritage bill that came through what how will that impact actually the wildlife and well i mean it's hard to say i i, I think um i mean it's not good obviously i mean if you're if there's going to be a lot of hedge cutting in august um you know august some birds are still nesting in august but also august is a very important month for uh, animals which are stocking up for the winter the berries uh, in particular um uh, it's hard to know what what impact it will have ultimately i mean the uplands there was burning as well in the uplands which is a totally different uh, situation but i mean there, certainly nothing good is going to come out of it I mean, I think the problem is that when the hedgerows were planted, you know, some of them are really ancient, but most of them are maybe 200 years old. When they were planted, they served a very particular purpose. You know, the farmer wanted to define his land uh, with his neighbour, um, and, um, you know, there was no wire fences or barbed wire in those days, so the, the hedge had to be uh, uh, impenetrable for the animals. So they, they were very uh, man- carefully uh, managed for that purpose. These days, that the purpose is gone. The, the sense of utility of the hedgerow is, is gone, which is unfortunate because I think we saw this summer with the drought. You could see on social media, you know, animals like their shade, and uh, you could see, you know, animals almost baked in the sun and all huddled underneath a tree, or uh, mm. you know. So I think the utility of the hedgerow isn't isn't gone, but uh, the perception of it being useful is gone. And, um, and I think we really have to get that back. That's, you know, like government schemes are great, but they don't work in the same way uh, as, you know, a farmer who actually sees how important a hedgerow is to, uh, to managing their farm. So that's the kind of thing mm. we need to get back to, I mean. Hmm. I, I, what, where do you think that, where that loss has come? I agree with you, I think, as well, that there's a lot of farmers who don't see the value of hedges. Um, like our farm our farm was uh extensively farmed for years was never reseeded so we have we have uh hay meadow we've trees everywhere we've thick hedgerows but the farmer who shares a boundary with us um two years ago Bonostros, decided to cut all his side which left it heavy on the southwest which is the dominant wind up our side anyhow so now every slight storm and we're losing a tree and we're losing a tree but you're right the drought was a perfect example even with the beasts and beast we outwintered some of ours and they did fantastic and they're healthier for us because they're not indoors and the hedges were great but still 
are still see farmers even in this drought or after the drought already cutting hedges again and I wonder where did we lose that connection as farmers and as people in general with, with nature do you think? I think you have to go back a long time. I think, you know, back in the day, you know, when, you know, when we were, we've been farming in Ireland for thousands of years and farmers had to work within the envelope that nature provided because literally there was no other alternative. Mm-hmm. The land could only support a certain number of animals. Uh, nutrients uh, were like gold dust to, to a farmer. You know, every cow pat was, was used. Um, but then we had two things. We had um, the development of uh, industrial chemicals and fertilizers, and we had subsidies. And both of those things have drawn farmers away from the natural limits that they used to have to work in. Now, I don't want to romanticize the old days because we had a famine and we had hardship that nobody you know, was going to want to go back to that. Yeah. But what has happened is that we have been t- we're totally divorced from the natural limits uh, of the soil and the water and the climate that we used to work within. Now, of course, those limits are still there, but mm. we have we have pushed them out. So, for instance, today we have you know extensive water pollution. About half of our water bodies are polluted, and most of that is is from agriculture. That's because there's so much uh, uh, manure that we we can't we don't know what to do with it anymore. So a lot of it is just getting it into our rivers. And then um, we, do, we don't have to deal with uh, pests because everything has a spray for it. Um, and we can reseed the, the field with different types of grass. And, um, and therefore those natural limits, uh, uh, we become divorced from the natural limits. And that's why we don't see the value anymore in things like hedgerows or diversity in, mm. um, in the plants that grow in the field or in the structure mm. of the soil or in managing the nutrients so that you're not wasting it. I mean, from a, from a, uh, just purely from a nutrient management point of view, it's getting into a river, then it's a, it's a waste of a mm-hmm. precious resource. What's the figure? 60, 64% of most of what if, when they put out synthetic nitrogen is lost instantly. <laughs> and I think if you work it out, the 64% is lost instantly. It's either gone in runoff or whatever. But by the time it comes down, only about one point something percent, I think, something like crazy like that is utilized by humans. Yeah, there's a great infographic. Mm-hmm. I must stick it up with this podcast. It's really interesting. But yeah. Yeah, but well, that gives us a quite good idea of the the issues actually out there. But we also want to talk about, you know, the whole part and the solutions that could be there and, and the different roles that everybody has to play: the the government, the farmers, and and the consumers or the citizens and. Well, what do you think are like acupuncture points where we could actually, you know, get in and to change that system? Where do you see the places of most potential? Um, I do see, I do see changes happening, um, but they're not happening at the scale or the pace that we really need to see them happening. Um, from my point of view, and I'm not a farmer, but uh, from looking from the outside, the system doesn't seem to me to be working for farmers either. So we have this bizarre situation where. Uh, the environment is being degraded nobody wants that Um, and yet the system that is being fought for isn't working for the farmers either Mm. so that doesn't make any sense to me Um, and to look at it then from a reverse point of view 
uh, can we build a system that works for farmers and the environment? Well, of course we can. Mm-hmm. That's, not, that's not a tough nut to crack. Everybody knows that um, because we had it for a long time. Um, so, so it's, it's, again, it's then manipulating the subsidy system that we're all locked into uh, to promote that. And when you get into the nuts and bolts of that, I mean, it gets quite messy. You know, it's uh, you know, you're into lobbying and political machinations, and that's when things get get ugly. Mm-hmm. And that's when, you know, the, the big money starts talking, and the the big uh, uh, political influence starts getting manipulated. And that's why uh, people without the political voice, particularly uh, par- farmers in land that has traditionally been called marginal or less mm. productive, they get forgotten about. Mm. Yeah, marginal because it doesn't fit an intensive system. <clears throat> I exactly. agree with you. I think mm. most, I think nearly every farmer knows whether they're conventional or not, knows that it's not working. Mm. You know? So as Natty said, the great thing about your book is there's, you do talk about some solutions. Give us some solutions. Let's finish this on a high so that people know that there, there is a chance to actually do something good. Well, I mean, anybody who wants to, to see what solutions look like uh, should go to the Burren, and you'll see where there are active farmers uh, doing well in an amazing landscape that is full of history and heritage and is protecting nature. What has happened to the Burren, it's become almost like the Disney's magic kingdom. People feel that, you know, there's something special in the air in the Burren that allows this to happen. But that's not the case. There's... Um, uh, an awful lot of Ireland that could fall within what, what they're calling high nature value mm. areas. So this is areas where lower intensity uh, production better fits the climate and the soil and, and, the, uh, and the natural conditions and uh, farmers can go about farming and uh, protect nature at the same time. So all that really requires is a reorientation of the subsidy system so that farmers are rewarded for protecting nature instead of being penalised for it, which uh, happens in a lot of places. Now, the uplands uh, are a slightly different different model, but again, the same thing can be true. Um, the uplands are... are one, one big problem with the uplands is that they're being depopulated at the moment. There's fewer and fewer people living in there. The response to that has been terrible fires. So I think... In, in that situation, we have to also look at uh, how can we manage the landscape without farming. Mm. Now, I know this is a psychological barrier to a lot of people <laughs> because, you know, you know, the idea of not farming land can be seen as failure. Yeah. Um, but we have a big challenge, and in many countries, I mean, most countries, it's normal that you have areas set aside for nature. Mm. And um, so I think, you know, What's wrong with that? Why can't we have areas that are only for nature? doesn't mean that the, uh, we're talking about kicking people off their land or anything like that. I'm a big fan of where a farmer wants to farm and is able to farm, we should support that. But where the conditions aren't there, mm-hmm. we have to be able to step back and say, okay, this land is best left just for nature. You can call it rewilding, whatever you want, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean depopulating. Actually, on the contrary, I think there's big opportunities for local people who live in those areas because there are other uses to the mm-hmm. land than you know, livestock farming. And, uh, but I accept that is a, a hurdle for a lot of people to, to get across. Um, but those, they're the kind of solutions, even in um, you know, intensive uh, dairying areas, 
Um, we there are solutions like technical solutions like uh, uh, biodigestion of um, manure so that it isn't filling up uh, slurry tanks in December when the farmer knows that there's still a couple of weeks that you know when there's nowhere to, for it to go. I mean we should have zero tolerance on, on mm. pollution. I mean look at the freshwater pearl mussel is a, is a is a good example of poor little mollusk you know that nobody is really going to have any affection for. But the pearl mussel is an an indicator of really really clean water. And that is why it's, uh, it's on the way out. It's literally on the next step to complete extinction. We should be aiming to have all our big rivers and lowland areas full of pearl mussels, mm. even in a landscape where there's dairy farming and other uh, intensive uses going on. We, there should be zero tolerance for pollution. Um, and I think that that's possible. We need to learn a lot of trees again. We need to see trees for really the amazing value that they provide in terms of regulating the flow of water off the land, recycling nutrients, um, regenerating the soil, protecting riverbanks, all those kind of things. Uh, we've become very tree-phobic. Trees are a threat, you know, what if it falls in my house? Yeah. Um, trees are seen as um, uh, a problem for flooding, you know. If a place floods, there seems to be a, an automatic, uh, well, we need to chop the trees down. And that makes the flooding worse. Uh, yeah. um, so we really need to look again at, uh, at, at those kind of natural solutions. Mm. From um, from the perspective from the perspective of a citizen, um, I think what we what we try to do with future is try and highlight those farmers that you've mentioned. You know that are um, farming with nature and have food to sell from the farm gate. Really, we're trying to connect people with them. But on an everyday basis, what do you think um, non-farmers citizens can do? Furniture. Yeah, that when I was writing my book, that was on my mind a lot because people want to do things, and for twenty years we've been told if we change the light bulbs and wash out our yogurt pots, we'll save the planet. Uh, that day is gone, mm. um, and I think what has happened is that it is quite convenient for the big power players, the big industry, to let individuals feel the burden of planetary collapse, you know, and let us be cleaning out our yogurt pots and doing our recycling. Yeah. So really what we need to do as citizens is get political. Mm. It's the only way that we will get the uh, systemic change that is urgently needed to address the climate crisis and the extinction crisis in the very short window that we have available to us to do these things. Mm. Um, if the politicians aren't uh, uh, hearing us, they're not going to act. Mm. And... Um, and I think that that's really what has to happen. I mean, I would say that the, the next time a politician calls to your door, tell them that the environment is important. Ask them what are they doing. Well, we know they're not doing anything, but ask them why they're not doing anything mm. uh, to address these issues. It's only then that we will see the, the big changes that uh, that we need. I agree. Systematic change. Yeah, I think we realize to the you know what we're doing that eating is really inherently political. And we don't realize that most of the time. And, uh, yeah, we think you know. There's a. I think when you're, as we said, it's so overwhelming sometimes, you know, climate and, and everything else that it's very easy to fall for the simple narratives. Mm. You know, if like the light bulb is the classic example here. Everyone changed their light bulbs and they're like, "Yes, I'm saving the planet." And you're like, they're still getting into the car and you know, going five minutes down the road instead of walking it, or they're still, um, you know, supporting stuff that is a part of that 
bigger system. Mm. So yeah, I think people need to realize that there is, yeah, as individuals we can make changes, but we need that societal kind of group thinking to really, and that collaborative action to really push change at a political level. Because our individual actions, you know, it's not enough if we don't change the system, as they say. Ecosystem thinking. Ecosystem thinking. <laughs> That's what we need. <laughs> the problem is, it's, it's mind-boggling. If you're an Isn't individual it? and you're trying to do the best thing, I mean, you, you literally wouldn't sleep at night um, yes. when faced with a supermarket shelf full of goods. It's in, a lot of the time, it's impossible even to know mm. what impacts your purchasing decisions are having. Um, so I think that is far too much of a burden for people who have other worries in their life as well. They weren't yes. you know, only worried about uh, climate collapse. People have families and mortgages to pay. So that's why... Um, we really need to change. And we're at a critical point at the moment because the common agricultural policy is mm. being changed. Citizens across the continent have made it very clear to politicians that they want a common agricultural policy that protects the environment. Nobody has been left in any doubt of that. But we're still wondering, will that happen? Will the mm. politicians uh, do that? Or are they going to be hijacked by the big lobby groups again? So that uh, the big producers who are making all the money... Um, are going to continue making all the money while uh, our environment and um, and everybody else in the countryside is left to hang out to dry. Yeah, because you're right. It doesn't just impact, you know, at a citizen level. Like as we've already said, farmers. You know, we we're facing a crisis in agriculture as well. Where you know, in Ireland, less than six percent are under the age of thirty five. So it's a question of who's going to farm, and then you have the other thing, and you know, particularly in my case, coming from the west of Ireland. You know, because we have marginal land and it's not deemed as productive. Most of that land, you know, young people are not going to want it if they if the the general kind of group thinking and consensus is, is that you can't make anything from this land. It ends up planted in, in sicka you know, sicka spruce, which is disastrous environmentally and socially and economically and everything else for the area. So there's the question of who's going to farm and where are they going to farm? And these questions are, are not raised because it falls in part with the environment as well that you know, these are things that have to come up with the cap. And, yeah, like, it, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. But there is ways that general citizens can get involved with the cap. I know the consultations, I think, have closed with this year. But they can support the likes of your work, the likes of other NGOs here in Ireland to get involved. Absolutely. Um, uh, we, they, one recent uh, development has been uh, what are called environmental innovation projects. I know I'm getting the acronym yes, right, EIPs. Um, and I think there's quite a number of them, and there's some really mm. exciting work being done. But um, I suppose what we're saying, this is fantastic, we really need to get on with it. We need to step this up a bit now, uh, because um, uh, I was at a conference recently where you know the people in the AIPs are delighted, but a lot of people are not in them, and they're disappointed, and they, sh- they, they really need to be, uh, be in these programmes. So, But hopefully... Uh, in not too long a time we'll have solutions coming out so there are really innovative things mm-hmm. happening and that these can be scaled up so that is, that is but I mean what we really want to see is um, more local community uh, engagement with the landscape uh, take an honest eye as to what's happening in your area uh, why do local communities for instance have so little say in forestry programs that are publicly funded mm-hmm. that that's just not democratic at all um uh why 
Why do uh, do these these big policies, are, which are having such a dramatic impact on local communities and environments, why why are politicians never making the connection between environmental degradation and rural decline? Mm-hmm. I mean, we have so, we hear so much in the media about rural decline, and uh, the people are climbing over themselves to tell us that rural Ireland is dying on its knees. Yet we never hear politicians say our landscape is wrecked some bits. Yeah. You know, our most precious asset has been totally undermined and degraded. Mm-hmm. Uh, politicians, either they lack the knowledge or they just lack the vocabulary. And I think that has to change. And if it's going to change, it won't change because of the Irish Wildlife Trust. It'll change because local people in those particular areas want it to change mm-hmm. and are giving it in the ear to the local politicians. Yeah, I agree. That's it for now, folks. Thanks a million for listening. To those of you who produce food, why not join the Fair Food Movement? Get involved, get in touch, join us. And if you're into Fair Food, then become a supporting member or check out our Patreon page to help us create more content like this. Until next time, eat well, choose fair.